Welcome to Women in Trade, a podcast for up-and-coming professionals like you in the field of international trade. Kelly Kemock is your guide on this journey, an accomplished lawyer and trade compliance consultant who's passionate about helping young women navigate this complex field, equipping you with the tools and resources you'll need to pursue an exciting and meaningful career. You'll hear candid interviews with other successful female leaders and benefit from their experience. It's time to build the career of your dreams. Here's your host, Kelly Kemock. Today we're talking with Janice Early. She is a director and a, an importer. We can just start with what is your current role and uh, how did you get to where you are today? Well, right now I work, as you said, for an importer and distributor. Um, we're actually most recently have begun uh, manufacturing operations. Uh, so that is kind of how my role has changed right now. It is kind of spanning between trade compliance and actually quality assurance and product stewardship. What is your career path? How did you get to the director position uh, where you are today? My career path was accidental. <laughs> it's a reoccurring theme, honestly. Which I'm sure you've heard uh, a lot that, uh, that nobody does this on purpose, so very few people. Um, so uh, I began in the industry in customs brokerage and working for third-party brokerage freight forwarding organizations, uh, mostly throughout my career. And then approximately seven years ago, uh, I decided to take a position with a uh, importer because that was really the only aspect that I haven't attempted yet. Was it hard to make the switch from the brokerage side to the import side, or were you able to apply a lot of the knowledge that you learned? Oh, no, a lot of the knowledge that I've learned. The only difference being it's more product-centric rather than uh, service or process. There's more of an emphasis based on how can trade compliance support the more profit center areas of the business rather than offering just an outside service to an importer. It's more of an uh, integration of trade compliance with procurement and sales and even at times legal. My career experience pre uh, prepared me very well because my current role has a lot of interaction with all of the government agencies that I worked with prior, being a customs broker, EPA, FDA, USDA. Um, so it, it gave me a very strong base for actually working with an importer. When you made the switch to working for an importer versus a broker, you feel like you're involved more in, in actual business decisions rather than just following a process and, and providing a service? Uh, yeah, most definitely, but not all companies uh, are formed that way. In the past, I know that trade compliance is kind of relegated to the back of the room historically. So this is more of integrating that more into the day-to-day -day operations. And uh, I know we spoke about this before, about being able to speak a language. Uh, there's a difference between telling somebody, no, you can't do that. Um, the conversation and the narrative moves more towards, can you look at this option? Okay, let's try to do it this way. 
or this is the reasons why we can't as to be not limiting and being an immediate hard stop uh, but evolving the conversation to things like tariff engineering saying like okay do we have any options to uh, change the mix of components uh, would that satisfy the customer and also bring down the duty rate to an acceptable price point uh, those types of conversations take place that you didn't have when you were working with the broker yeah no when we were working with the broker basically the customer uh, gave us the marching instructions gave us all the information uh, and we would apply it most of the conversations on that end uh, centered around feedback getting from uh, a government agency a partner government agency such as FDA and what they came back with okay and then helping the customer get us the information we need to satisfy the requirements of that government agency or working with them on say a CF 28 or 29 in order to get that response to customs. Do you feel like your job involved educating the client about why they needed to provide you or how they needed to provide you the information? Very much so because they are some customers who were uh, working in imports that didn't have a basis for it, you know, it was just basically trial and error and they didn't realize all of the regulations and, and what needed to happen to do it effectively, do it compliantly. So there was a lot of education on that end with some customers. Other customers, it was more limited to certain areas uh, of compliance rather than generally speaking. Was it formal training or it was just kind of informal training? Like you saw something that was a red flag on their piece of information, like uh, you have this classified in this chapter and that is, we don't think that's right. And so that you kind of have to explain to them. Well, it was more of an informal way. Um, most of the conversations to be had. Uh, I know, you know, years ago, because uh, I've been in here for a long time <laughs> in the industry, uh, I was actually working in the, in the industry before informed compliance. So back then, uh, it was basically on-the-job training, and it was almost set up like a guild, okay, where you came in as a junior entry rider, they called them at that time, okay, and, and then you moved up to senior, and it was very much on-the-job training. There, there wasn't any formal program like there is today, where, where you can take certification classes and, and learn how to classify and uh, learn about valuation and, and all of the other aspects of uh, compliance. You said when you were working for the broker, you managed relationships with government agencies. So were you networking with your contacts at those agencies and those kinds of contacts you were able to take into your position at an importer? No, not really, uh, because I kind of moved around a lot. I was in a uh, single port of entry, so throughout my career I, I moved around quite a bit, so um, I didn't have those named contacts at the agencies. I kind of developed it as I went along, um, and I really didn't have any difficulty in, in, in having those conversations, though there, you know, a couple of ports, there are some tough customers there, 
in both customs and FDA, which makes it a little more challenging, but um, I didn't find it too difficult to deal with. If you were going to look at a new hire, what kind of certifications would you find um, useful in someone who, who's kind of building their career without a lot of experience? Um, usually um, in, in various areas of the country, they have a World Trade Organization um, that offers certification programs. Various cities have those organizations um, where they offer those types of programs. Um, that is very important on the importer side because what I've found, I'm not saying that this is across the board, but um, what I have particularly found is that because the burden is really completely on the importer, they don't do a lot of training in-house with a lot of customs brokerage organizations, okay, uh, particularly in the classification area because the importers have to provide that information. They're not building those skill sets like they used to. So that is very difficult to find. And the uh, learning curve is lengthy in, in trying to start off from the GRIs and all of the elements that go into actually classifying something properly. You know, are you gonna look at the components? Are you gonna look at the intended use? It becomes an art form at that point on the importer side to find out exactly, okay, what is the most correct, um, most effective way to be able to do this? And that skill set in working um, as a service provider in third-party logistics uh, is not readily available. If we can talk about your current role as a director, uh, what industry is your company in? Uh, we're in the food and beverage industry, and it is uh, food service ware. Are you regulated by FDA regulation? Yes, and in some cases, EPA. Oh, okay. If you could tell us a little bit about kind of your responsibilities as a director and maybe then explain kind of maybe your team and maybe what lower level people might do in um, a company such as yours. Right now, uh, I, I basically started off in trade compliance, but I'm spanning a lot of different areas right now with quality assurance on both the process and the product end of things, and also uh, assisting our manufacturing organization. In our industry, the um, connectivity with a government agencies centers around what goes into the product rather than the product itself, a lot of times having to do with EPA. What chemical components go into the product that we have to have clearance with FDA and EPA as well for proper uh, import of the product and manufacture of the product. FDA is mostly whom we work with. We've had to develop a foreign supplier verification program with FDA one of our items and I would say that 95% of our imported product have to be cleared through FDA. So you said your responsibilities include trade compliance, quality assurance, and product stewardship. Trade compliance would be making sure that you're meeting FDA requirements on the import transaction. Can you tell us a little bit more about quality assurance and product stewardship? 
Product stewardship co comes mostly in those products that are a part of green, sustainable products where they are compostable, they're recyclable, they don't place a heavy burden on the environment. That's where most of the product stewardship uh, comes in. And basically that is making sure of, that is going through all the product testing and the analysis uh, and approving those products that they meet all regulatory uh, requirements for both sustainability and, and for import and uh, public health and safety. As far as the team of people who I work with, it's, it's very varied. Um, it runs the gamut between, yes, learning how to classify, uh, working with the customs brokers, working with FDA if there is a sampling for exam, if there's an intensive exam for a container pulled by customs, then we have other people who work mostly on the analysis end and continuous improvement. We will have like vendor and broker scorecards. So we take a look at um, broker compliance. They work on um, the product and uh, the duty spend and the level of tariffs, how those trend lines go. Uh, so a lot of it has to do with performance analysis and also product regulatory databases, uh, a lot of metrics and analysis work also uh, goes into it. Are they organized by responsibility or does your team, does everyone on your team do classification, broker compliance and performance analysis? Uh, no, it, it depends on the person's skill set and what they gravitate to. Everybody has different experiences and some outfits them better in one area than the other area. We basically, we do a, what is called a SWOT. It's an exercise in what are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So we go through that and we see, you know, what a person's skill set is, what their experience is, what they really like to do, even those things that challenge them, what they like to do, what they don't like to do, to really build a team that capitalizes on everybody's strengths and diminishes the team's weaknesses. So it's almost what we like to do is almost look at it symbiotically, like an ecosystem, okay, where everything merges together for what needs to be done and what the direction is. I've had a mentee reach out to me asking about how she could expand her experiences at her current role because she felt like she wasn't, she was only, you know, on one particular topic. I had a hard time answering her. All I can advise you to do is, is ask for more responsibility or say, can I learn a different aspect of trade compliance? Can you send me to some training on this? And so I can take on that responsibility. Um, and she didn't think that her managers would be open to that. And I said, well, that's disappointing um, because in trade compliance, it's always, you know, been in my perspective an on the job kind of training and in order to do that you have to ask and say okay i want to learn more i want to learn more so i love the way that you have this outlook with your team of you know what do you know what do you want to know and how do we divvy up the responsibilities long story short what advice do you have for someone who's in a role where they want to expand like how how can they approach expanding their knowledge base um, it's a little difficult to answer that question uh, as you had 
because there are a lot of environmental elements that you have to know and able to guide somebody. You have to know what the culture is, what they're experiencing now. You have to you have to paint a little bit. They have to paint a little bit of a landscape for you in how the corporation is set up and why does she think that she is only being relegated to a single area or a single task. So that is very that is very hard to, I mean, the manager could be unapproachable. So that makes it difficult. One of the things she can do is she can ask other people if they need any help, okay? So that she could find out more about the entire throughput and going back to that manager and dimensionalizing her conversation um, by finding out different pieces of the operation, assisting others, potentially getting support before she goes and um, asks that question. So it's more of a a dimensional picture that she's presenting the uh, manager with rather than just saying, why am I getting shut down? That's all she can do is just kind of like build her case and approach and approach the manager. I agree with that. Um, you mentioned about corporate culture, like maybe the culture doesn't allow for it. And, and you obviously create a culture that that is inclusive like that. How does one know? How can one find out what a corporate culture is before they accept a position at a company so that they don't find themselves in this kind of spot? Yes, that is a difficult one. (laughs) Um, A lot of times it comes down to the question that the person being interviewed asks, whether it's a single individual or it's a panel. One of the questions that I like to ask, and I'm a perspective employee is what are some of your must-haves when you're looking at a company that would make it the best fit for you? So you get to hear from them about what it is they're looking for in a company and then you can speak to that uh, a bit and uh, really find out if that employee is a good fit for the operation. One of the, uh, some of the questions that they can ask is, what is your leadership style? That, that, that can give you a good indication of what you're having to deal with. Right, because if they, if they have a, a thoughtful answer of how they are approaching being a leader, then at least you know that they are putting some effort towards being a, a, a good leader in theory. But if the answer is like, I don't know, I just show up, then obviously run away screaming, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I mean, our executive executive team uh, and CEO really champion that sort of culture to begin with, which makes it very easy. It it doesn't help if the person at the top um, is not looking for that culture and, and it's more of a cutthroat culture. It's very hard to make those changes from the bottom up. But as long as you have the executive leadership wanting a very inclusive culture, uh, it makes it a lot easier to be able to build that throughout the organization. We talked about 
how you have to speak the language of uh, the different aspects of your company. So how do you build a culture where you're in on the decisions at the beginning instead of finding out later that there's a problem? That Yeah, that's harder in a larger company um, because it still seems to be very much in a silo mentality, okay, where you have very hard structure around business units and there's not a lot of flow between other groups like sales and procurement is on one side, then you have logistics and supply chain on the other side, then you have trade compliance. So it really helps if the environment is more cross-functional, you know, because then they're not going to come to you until there is a problem. There is a inspector or another government person knocking on their door, and then people are running around with their hair on fire saying, help me, help me. What we've tried to do is actually have a more closer relationship with, say, procurement and sales. They're looking for a particular price point, so they're going to try to find out, okay, how much does this cost to bring it in, to add that into the cost component of the good. They're going to look to see if there's ways, if there's any type of program out there, whether you're talking about GSP or the miscellaneous tariff bill or in, in this environment currently any exclusions um, that would assist their efforts in uh, driving sales, gaining market share, or even taking a look at um, making the good out of alternate components that's not going to raise the cost and perhaps may lower the cost and um, pitch that to the customer and, and see if that's a doable alternative. So um, those are all types of conversations that happen. It just depends on the organization, really. But I think it, it has to do with how you can rethink the normal conversation in trade compliance so that it's more supportive of these operations rather than being just an outside inspector and a cop saying, no, you can't do that but not having a potential solution and alternative. That's very important in getting those groups to work more together with trade compliance within an organization. Can I ask how the Section 301 duties on Chinese goods are affecting you? Uh, it has tripled my workload. Uh, yes, it, it is a very difficult situation. It has an enormous impact. Um, you can just look at uh, the news and, and see how widespread that is. You know, so there's a lot of things happening. You can't switch up your supply chain in a heartbeat. Uh, these are relationships, business relationships that have been developed over years. Now, China has the largest manufacturing capability, bar none. And if you have a product that also requires a high level of health compliance, um, then that makes it uh, that much more difficult to change your supply chain. Whether you're talking about working with your suppliers on pricing to hopefully get uh, pricing lowered. That's one aspect. Another aspect is uh, people have been talking about bonded warehousing uh, in this type of a situation where you're not paying duty up front. I have heard importers talk about bonds, surety bonds, 
and bond stacking issues um, because the surety companies and customs are coming back to them saying your bond isn't sufficient. And you're raising it, and then four months later, they're coming back because they used a 12-month rolling average. They're coming back again and saying, you need to raise your bond again. And sometimes they're asking for collateral, depending on the situation. Um, so that's an added component of tying up cash flow in order to satisfy the bond requirements that have skyrocketed with these tariffs and how broad-based they are. A bond value has to cover X amount of the value of the good or the value of the duties owed, right? So when the duty is increased to this 25, 30% that we're talking about, um, that's why the bond has to be increased, right? Yes, it's covering both the duty and the tariffs. And bond stacking is just a way to purchase a secondary bond in order to have a total value that covers? Yeah, it's hard because a new bond has to be written and the old bond has to be canceled. But the first bond, you have to keep that in place until it liquidates. You're having another bond with a new start date that you have to have that money in abeyance. Okay, until all of those covered under that bond liquidate. So it becomes problematic when they're asking for additional collateral. You know, if your bond is going uh, above 1 million, you have to hold that out and say like a letter of credit or something. You can't use those funds for your business. Okay, so all of that money is being tied up just for a custom surety bond. And then you have the other things on tariff engineering. Yeah, and so tariff engineering is interesting because um, you, you kind of are in a gray area, right? Because the idea is that you're going to uh, make changes to the product in order to change the classification of the product, right? In order to hopefully avoid duties from section 301 or just lowering the classification rate in general. So in what way can you change your classification while still being inside the legal bounds of, of classification rules? Okay, in, in one aspect, you can look at a um, product and say, these are the components of these products, okay? But then on the other hand, you could look at its intended use. There, there was a case of Ford versus the Department of Treasury when um, they were bringing in, I think, what was it, cargo vans, I believe it is. Oh, yeah, um, the seat, right? Yes. So when we're talking about, so that what is its intended use at time of import versus how it was imported? They imported it with the seat in it as a passenger vehicle. Yes. And then when it crossed the border, they took the seat out and started using it as a cargo. So what was their decision? Uh, it's still out there. Oh. <laughs> it's still out there. And it has a potential to be able to change how we look at or how customs is looking at how something is classified. You know, because if they look at intended use, okay, that's going to that's gonna change the ball game a little bit. That's going to be a game changer. Because on the one hand, you could look at a product and say, Okay, it's made of these components. It, it say it's a non-woven, very vague HTS code. It can cover a lot of items. And then you can look at the goods intended use. And sometimes the goods intended use is at a lower rate of duty than if you're looking at 
exactly what it's made out of. There are some things where you're actually getting more correct, okay, by using intended use versus using what it's made out of and what that HCS code is. And if it's one that's very vague and covers a whole host of items, then that's also a part of tariff engineering as well. It's like really digging into Mm -hmm. um, and really drilling down and analyzing a product to come up with the most correct designation. And with tariff engineering, there's a cautionary note there. You have to go to multiple sources to find out whether your thinking on that is compliant. So it's not something that, oh, I think we can do this. Okay, let's do it. What you would like to do needs to be corroborated, okay, by legal type sources. Yeah, I mean, you need to do your, your due diligence and your research. And if you're not requesting a binding ruling, you better have a really good researched argument on paper that you can hand to customs if they start asking mm -hmm. So you, you were using tariff and duties. I tend to use them interchangeables, but you were saying, you know, you kind of made a distinction between the two. So what is the distinction between tariff and duty? Uh, duty is the ad valorem duty rate that covers the importation of that product, no matter what country it's exported from. Uh, the tariffs are specific to pieces of legislation and, and the countries that are uh, named in that legislation, um, like you can have section 232 on the steel and aluminum that covers a whole host of countries whereas the section 301 just covers goods being uh, imported from China. One other thing I wanted to go back to was when you were talking about the three the implementation of the 301 duties and how you know changing the supply chain isn't really feasible um, especially when you are dealing with products regulated by the FDA. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to ask you, is that because the FDA has restrictions on who you purchase goods from? Do they need to know your bill of material? Like if anything changes in that, do you have to advise them and get approval? Um, no, it's not, it's not that aspect. I'll, I'll mention medical devices. That's my background. That's the only reason why I thought of that. But I know it's much different in, in your arena here. Yeah, because in medical devices, you know, it takes a while to be able to have a manufacturing operation get to a certain level of quality that will satisfy FDA. I'll use medical disposable gloves. They are a medical device, okay? And if they don't have the proper integrity, if they don't have the proper barrier, it, it can cause an impact to public health um, with the spreading of contaminants, diseases, illnesses. So to get a factory up and running to a certain level, getting that factory's filing with FDA as a foreign establishment, all of the testing required to get that approved, whether you're talking about pre-market notifications, things of that nature. It, it takes a long time to be able to do that because FDA can put you on notice. They can put alert out there 
with that manufacturer saying that there are issues with their product. And, and then you have to go through a series of uh, getting sampling of multiple shipments before you're, you're taking off that list. And the FDA can just send you a letter that says, we're not, we're not accepting any of your goods anymore. Is, is that, and that's how quickly they can do that, right? Yeah, and that you have to either export them or destroy them. It's less of a change to the product itself, and the FDA is more concerned about the change of the location and the manufacturing facility and whether they're approved. Yes, the manufacturing process and the materials used are very key to having a top quality product meet those rigorous levels of integrity, product integrity. I so appreciate it, and I appreciate your advice, and I, I love learning from, from you, and so all of the topics that we talked about, super interesting and helpful, and hopefully helpful to people building their careers, so they can be like, oh, I never heard that term, I'll go look it up, and just knowing the terminology in our industry is, is half the battle to performing in an interview, right? You need to be able to express that you have the knowledge base. Very helpful, and I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I'll let you get going and have the rest of your day, your busy day. All right. Thank you so much, Kelly.